0: Uh, tonight we come to Revelation chapter twenty, which is one of the—I mean, it's what the entire Left Behind book series is based on—is a particular interpretation of Revelation twenty, and hopefully we're going to completely deconstruct that for you tonight. But um, that's not the point. The point is Jesus. But we're going to read Revelation twenty and uh, and then we will um, look at what it means. So this is Revelation twenty. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. Holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and for those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years was ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented by day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for, uh, for what it is you are doing in it, the way that you are working through it. Lord, th- these are difficult words. These are often confusing words. So Father, I pray that you would help me to speak clearly. God, that anything that, uh, that I say that might be uh, untrue or not reflective of your glory would burn away and that your name would be glorified. Father, and I pray uh, as, uh, as we do each week that you tonight would strike a straight blow with the crooked stick. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. So, uh, if you've been if you've been sticking with us, uh, we we've been making our way through Revelation, and um, last week uh, Doctor Butner preached on Revelation 17, and now we're on Revelation 20. So, obviously, we skipped some things, and here's why: it's because we're out of time. <laughs> um, we have we've got one more regular week next week, and then we'll have our senior night, and so we had to kind of fast forward. So, uh, I'm going to sum up. Revelation 18 and 19 in basically two sentences. So in Revelation 18, the great horde of Babylon is destroyed. And in Revelation 19, Jesus marries his people. And if you really want to hear uh, my sermon on Revelation 19, when the time comes, ask me to do your wedding, because that's the one I'm going to preach. It's Revelation 19. And some of you were at Austin and Jojo's wedding, and you've heard it. So we skipped it because of that. So if you really want to hear me preach on that passage, ask me to do your wedding. Um so Revelation 20. Um one of the things that one of the things that I think is so interesting whenever we come up with a new um we come up with some new technology or something uh, new that didn't exist before is our our vocabulary changes. Uh that that our our language um changes to reflect these changes in technology because 15 year old me would have had no idea what the phrase spoiler alert meant no clue because like you just went to the movie theater and like it wasn't going to get spoiled on the internet and and really like movies with huge spoilers wasn't that big of a thing until the sixth sense came out and he was dead the whole time the movie's been out for like 20 years now Um, I'm sorry Ben but like why do we hate spoiler alerts well we hate spoiler alerts because we don't want the thrill of the movie or the show or whatever Uh, we don't want it being spoiled we don't want it ruined and, uh, and, and one, of my, one of my favorite things to do, and this is, so, um, this is so nerdy about me, but one of the things that I love to do is I love to go back and I love to watch the scene from, uh, uh, from Avengers Endgame. It's been out long enough, so I might ruin it. But if you haven't seen it, it's been out for, what, three years now, two years? Just ruin it. Yeah. It's been a long time. My, 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 my favorite thing in the world is to go back and to watch the final battle where, where Captain America, Iron Man, and Thor are fighting Thanos. And it's like, y- you get all these really cool moments, but my favorite thing to, to do is to watch it with the, with the, the different crowd reactions from the theater uh, piped in over it. Because, like, because like, like hearing the just sheer excitement of the crowd when Captain America picks up Mjolnir, and, and people just lose their minds, it's, this, is your, this, this is on you, Anna. This is on you. It's been out for a while. But, but, but to go back, and I think, I think the reason I love watching it with the crowd noise piped in is because it reminds me of what it felt like to experience all that for the first time. And, and here's the thing. Revelation 20 is the ultimate spoiler alert because here it is. Jesus wins. Like, that's what Revelation 20 is showing us. And so that everything, that, everything that's happened before and the Bible actually invites you to do this, to actually read the end first and then see how everything else plays out. Because this is the, this is the great promise of Revelation 20 is that we, we don't live in a, in a world that we're waiting for like the big reveal. We don't live in a world that we're trying to not have the ending spoiled. We live in a world that we are guaranteed a certain hope and a certain future. And that's what Revelation 20 is showing us. And actually... With as much as I've been talking about uh, Beach Week, I'm heavily indebted to my friend Elliot, who's going to be our Beach Week speaker for the outline for this sermon. Um, so, if you think this is good, that's just a plug to go to Beach Week because this is not exactly what he did, but it's pretty close. Um, so, let's start with this though. This thousand years, this millennium. Um, this is at least when I was growing up. I don't know, like, I don't know if it's something people really care about anymore. But like when I was growing up like what your, what your view of the millennium was, was like everything about like what kind of Christian you were. Like if you, you know, if you took it one way, you would like believe the Bible if you took it another way. You didn't. And it was, you know, and I, like, I remember, I remember, um, uh, a, st- a church I was on staff at as like an intern while I was in seminary. And the pastor was like, the pastor stood up and he described one particular view of the millennium that, that, that I actually believed in that I held. and He was like, and this is heresy. And I was like, I got to quit. Um, I got to find another church. Um, so let me begin this by saying that there, there's a lot of stuff about the millennium that Christians have disagreed on in good faith. This is a secondary issue. This is, this is something that uh, we can disagree on. I'm going to present my view, what I believe Scripture teaches about this, and, and kind of the implications of that. And I want to do that positively, but I want to do that in such a way that says, hey, there's room, there's room to disagree here. So if we walk away from this tonight not being on the same page over what this thousand years, this millennium is, um, I'm not saying you're not a Christian, and I don't think you're saying I'm not a Christian. I'm just saying I think we disagree, and that's okay. But, but one particular view that, that used to be pretty popular, maybe maybe it still is, I mentioned before, um, is, is what's called the, the premillennial view. And this is, this is the idea that um, if you're familiar with if you're familiar with the book and movie series Left Behind, this is kind of what this is based on. Uh, this view states that all of the events that we just read about in Revelation 20, uh, the thousand years, the binding and the unbinding of Satan, um, the, uh, the great battle, that all of this is going to happen after this thousand year reign takes place. So, uh, so Jesus is going to return and he's going to rapture his people. And then uh, he'll return for seven years for this great battle. He's going to rule for a 1,000 years and then let Satan out for a time and then throw Satan back into the lake of fire once and for all. That's the basic time. There, there's Within the views, there's a lot of different nuances and stuff. Um, I actually don't think that that view makes any sense. I don't think that's accurate, and here's why. First off, it, it doesn't make sense chronologically, right? If you look at um, if kind of what we've been talking about in Revelation um, – you don't see revelation as being this like neat and tidy unfolding of human history. Like this is going to happen and then this is going to happen and then this is going to happen. And hopefully over the course of the semester, we've made the case that revelation is not a prediction of what's going to happen, but instead is a different perspective and a look at a spiritual look at what's happening in the real world around us now. So that, so that we see these things happening basically in perpetuity and so, with that in mind, we see that that Revelation twenty begins again with John saying, "Then I saw." And so that's a that's a uh, that's a, a flashing uh, sign to say, "Hey, this is a cue that John is seeing another vision. That this is another vision that John is seeing that is not necessarily a like one to one literal thing that's happening, but it's uh, it's another." Way that John sees the unfolding of this vision, and actually, what this is, this is the seventh beginning of the seventh cycle. And so, um, to walk all the way back through Revelation, Revelation four, John sees the seven seals being opened. In Revelation seven, John hears the seven trumpets being played. In Revelation twelve, John sees the dragon. Revelation fifteen, John sees the bowls. In seventeen, uh, John sees the the great, uh, the great harlot of Babylon. And then in Revelation 19, John sees the fall of of the two beasts and of of the woman. And so when John says here in Revelation 20, then I saw, he is describing again what he's already described six other times. It's like concentric circles that keep building on each other, and they're all happening at the same time. John is retelling this story seven times. And if this is supposed to be a chronological interpretation of what's happening, then other than the fact that we understand how numbers work, why does Revelation 20 come after Revelation 19? Because at the end of Revelation 19, we see Jesus defeating all of his enemies. And yet here are all of his enemies again. So what John is doing is he's giving us a cue that we are starting this cycle back over one last final time. And it makes sense, literally. Remember that the, number, the numbers that we see in Revelation are highly symbolic. And this number is no different. That 10 is a number of completion and 10 occurring three times, another, you know, another kind of big number in scripture, 10 times 10 times 10 is 1,000. So I think the simplest explanation of what is happening with this 1,000 years, with the millennium, and again, we're free to disagree, but I think that the simplest explanation is that this millennium is just a long time, but it is exactly the amount of time that God has laid out for his redemptive purposes to be completed in the world. And so I think the far clearer understanding of this passage is that the millennium, the entire thousand years, represents the entire span of time between Christ's ascension and his second coming. So that means that we, right now, are living in the millennium. We are living in this period of time. That we are not sitting here waiting for Jesus to begin his reign in heaven. We're not sitting here waiting for Jesus to take the throne. No, we are worshiping the ruling and reigning Jesus right now. And the book of Hebrews tells us that he, uh, he made the once and for all sacrifice and then sat down at the right hand of God the Father, that Jesus is currently ruling and reigning over everything right now. So we are living in the millennium. But if you've been paying attention to this passage, it should raise a question. And it's a very good question because verse 2 says that in this millennium Satan will be bound and thrown down he'll be shut away in a pit. And it doesn't seem like that's what's happening. Right? We look around the world and we see evil still happening. I mean just a couple of hours ago in Knoxville there was another uh, another school shooting. And so so we see this idea that Satan is somehow bound, yet we still see evil at work in the world. And so what do we do with that? It's a good question. If Jesus is really sovereign, if he's really reigning over creation, how can all this bad stuff happen? Well, again, we have to pay close attention to what John is saying. And remember, the entire testimony of the book of Revelation is that Just because Jesus is ruling and reigning doesn't mean that there is not still suffering and hurt in the world. But it's what he's doing through it. But in verse 3, John specifically tells us that the thing that Satan is bound from doing is deceiving the nations. Deceiving the nations. And remember, the best way for us to interpret Scripture is with Scripture itself. So when we see that Satan is bound from deceiving the nations, we need to ask some questions. Who are the nations? How are they deceived? And so if you go back to the Old Testament, remember Abraham, that God promised Abraham that Abraham was going to be the father of a great nation. And that his seed, his offspring, were going to bless the nations. They were going to be, it was through Abraham's seed, through his offspring, was going to be a light to the world, a light to the nations. And this ultimately is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus is born, think about what happens. There's this, there's this old prophet in the, in the temple named Simeon. And he says that when he sees Jesus, he says, I have seen the light of the world. Then we see, uh, you know, a couple years after Jesus is born, we see these three wise men come to worship him. But where do they come from? They don't come from Israel. They come from the nations. Over the course of Jesus' life, a Roman centurion, a Canaanite woman, and a bunch of Greeks believed in him. And so we see the nations are seeing the light of God as it's being shown to them through the person and the work of Jesus. And then after Jesus' ascension, when the apostles go and they start preaching at Pentecost, uh, we see Samaritans, Romans, and Greeks all converted, all coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And Paul, in his writing, proclaims that the gospel has been preached to every creature under heaven. And so the point is this, that now that Jesus Christ has come Died and risen again, the gospel is no longer good news for just one nation. The gospel is no longer just good news for ethnic Israel. It is good news to the world. And one commentator put it this way He said, Every time we see a new convert added to the church, Satan's inability to deceive the nations is proclaimed afresh. He said, Every time somebody believes the gospel, for the first time, every time somebody's heart is, is awakened and, and regenerated by the Holy Spirit, Satan is being reminded that he has no power to deceive the nations any longer. So, so John is not saying that Satan has lost his power to persecute. And in fact, it's probably, uh, it's probably understandable and, and probably likely that Satan's awareness that he has no power to deceive the nations, that sparks his rage even more. John is not saying that uh, Satan has lost his power to, uh, to prowl. First Peter says that he's like a roaring lion searching for who he can devour. We're not, uh, John is not saying that Satan has lost his power to scheme and to disrupt unity within the church. He's not saying that uh, Satan has lost his power to disguise himself as an angel of light. No, but what John is saying is that Satan will never be permitted to incite and organize the unbelieving nations of the world in a final catastrophic assault against the church until such a time as God and his providence so determines. In Matthew 16, Jesus asks the disciples who the people are saying that he is. And they give some answers. He's a prophet. he's, uh, He's John the Baptist come again. And then Jesus asks them who, who they say he is. And Peter replies with, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus responds with this. He says that the church is going to be built on that confession and that the gates of hell will never prevail against it. And that's the point. It's not that Satan is completely powerless. He is not. It's that he knows that he will never prevail against Christ's church. Ever. And that's why he fights dirtier. And that's why he does the things that he does uh, moving into this this great battle that we see. So we come to the battle. Satan is released from his prison and he comes to bring war. He comes to bring war against Jesus and all of his people. It's one of these things that is setting up to be an epic battle, right? Because you get these, you get these nations, you get Gog and Magog, and I don't know who that is or what that's supposed to be. And it says that their, their numbers outnumber the sand on the shore and they've surrounded, they've surrounded the camp of the saints. And surely we have an epic battle on our hands. That's about to come. And, and it reminded me of uh, a couple of years ago when we were living in, uh, we were living in Tuscaloosa and, uh, my dearly beloved, uh, Ole Miss rebels, uh, came to Alabama to play Alabama in Tuscaloosa. And, you know, a friend of mine came over from my hometown. We were feeling pretty good about the game. You know, like, I'm not like a big, like we're going to win every game, but I was like, yeah, we, we got a shot, you know, like we got, we got DK Metcalf and AJ Brown and, uh, you know, and um, we got some good players, you know, we got some good things that are going to happen. And, um, and it was an eight o'clock game, which like nighttime in Tuscaloosa, that's, that's something. And, and, it, but like the day, the day was just like, the day was just coming up us like all day. Like the weather was great. We found a really good parking spot as we're walking in. One of my friends is like, Hey, cause we had tickets like at the very top of the stadium. And, and one of my friends is like, Hey, I've got tickets on like the 15th row for the 50 yard line for you, like for free. And we're like, the, it, the stars are aligning. Like we're going to, we're going to. We're going to pull this off. And we, and we, we walk into the stadium. And normally, like, when you go to a seat, that, like, you have to immediately just start walking up. To get to the seats, that we, we had to, you actually had to walk down. And we walked in on the field level. And I walked out there, like, on the field level. And I immediately knew, we are about to die. And sure enough, like, have you ever been to one of those games where, like, the score looks kind of close, but, like, it really was never that close? The score was 66 to 3. And it wasn't that close. <laughs> We had no shot. There was no. There was no fight. It was over before it started. And think about that moment in any in any uh, movie where, where you know, like you know, you know that it's over. And again, I've already talked about Endgame. Um, so you know that as soon as, and I'm plug your ears, Anna, but you know, you know that as soon as as soon as Captain America hears Sam's voice, you know it's over. Like, like there's some details we got to work out, but you know that it's over. Or, um, if any of you guys uh, watch the Mandalorian, uh, that, that, that scene, that scene, I almost pulled the whole thing, but that that scene where Gina Carano's character says, Oh, a single X-wing we're saved. You know, at that moment it's over and look at what happens in this battle. Do what? I'm sorry. Well, I'm, I'm trying to I know, I know, I know. cast a wide net. Look, what, what we see in this battle is this great army that outnumbers the sand and sea and they've surrounded God's people and they're about to attack and the Bible tells us that a fire came down from heaven and devoured them all. They are wiped out in an instant. There's not, there's not even, like think about all the crazy stuff that John describes in Revelation, and this one he's like, nope, fire from heaven kills them all. That's it. That's all we get. Because here's the thing, that Jesus and Satan are never presented as equals. That whatever power, whatever authority Satan has, it only comes from Jesus himself. And when Jesus decides that that moment is over, that moment is over, and there is nothing that Satan... Or evil, or these two beasts, or this great whore, or anything else can do. There's not a thing that Satan loses decisively once and for all, forever. And so now we come to the end. We come to the the judgment before the great white throne. And here's the thing: the the J word, judgment, right? Like like we all know the judgment. Like we're not supposed to judge. That's like, sorry, like. It used to be the, like, like everybody, whether you were a Christian or not, like everybody knew John 3.16. And now, now everybody just knows like, well, the Bible says you shouldn't judge. And so like, you know, like whatever. Um, it's pretty much the only Bible verse that anybody knows at this point. Um, and everybody's kind of like vaguely like, oh, I think I've heard once you're not supposed to judge. Um, and, and, and yo, know, look, like, like really in, in, in a lot of ways, like our, our, our culture, and, and, and I say this including ourselves, like we're kind of averse to judgment. Like, we don't want to, like, we don't want to come out and say, like, really hard things. And, and, and I, think, I think a lot of times we, we get, like, really hyperbolic about, like, unimportant things that we judge. Like, oh, like, I hate tacos. They're terrible. You know, like, we, we, we do that because it's, like, kind of what, and tacos are fine. But, like, it's an example. <laughs> we do that to try to make up for the fact that we're kind of afraid of it. We're, we're averse to it. And honestly, when we talk about, like, when we talk about hell and lakes of fire, and final judgments and all this stuff, like it makes us kind of uneasy. And, and I'm going to go on a limb and say that if you're here at this point in the semester on a Monday night, like you're somewhat serious about Christianity. And even then you're kind of like, oh, he's going to talk about hell, isn't he? Like, ugh. But, but we kind of we have to because it's here. But, but I, I want to suggest to you that you actually need for this to be true. You need for there to be some great judgment at the end of time. You need that to be true. You need something that exists beyond your moral code or your ability to be your best self or your power to ultimately decide what is right and wrong. You need something that is going to sit down and hold all of the evil in the world accountable. And if you don't believe me, how does it make you feel? That when the Allied forces were closing in on Berlin and they were about to capture Hitler, they just shot himself in the head supposedly I, there, there is there is a Netflix documentary about him living in the Bahamas, and i 've watched it, and it 's something um, he, but but he but he but he was about to have to face the consequences of his actions and he killed himself. He escaped judgment. And even if he didn't, what is a human court going to do to this guy who has orchestrated the murder of millions of people? What, what about our justice system, whether that's a global thing or like an American thing or whatever, what about that says that that can ever come back to, to hold them accountable for that? What about Osama bin Laden? Like, I remember, I, I was 16 years old when, uh, when I was driving to school and heard on the radio that a plane had flown into the World Trade Center. And that was all we knew for several hours. We didn't know what was going on. He orchestrated the worst terror attack on September 11th and, again, was just shot in the head without a trial. Or think about, um, I'm not sure if I'm going to say his name right, but, but Cho, Cho Sung Hoi, who on April 16, 2007, killed 32 people on campus at Virginia Tech and finally turned the gun on himself? Did he escape justice? And again, if he had gone before a court, would, would that judgment have been enough to have set it right? Think about Dylan Roof or Adam Lanza or Larry Nassar or any one of these evil men that we've seen uh, committing mass shootings or unspeakable abuse. We've seen unspeakable evil play out in front of us. And and there's so much more that we don't hear about. And honestly, the sad thing is there are probably those of us in this room who have had these unspeakable acts done to us that we can't ever put words to. That we know that our world is crying for justice. And unfortunately, there is no form of human justice that we can enact that will ever be enough. It doesn't mean that we don't pursue it but it does mean that we need something bigger than us, something beyond us. But here's the thing. If there is a great white throne, and if there is one sitting on that throne that is so great that the earth and the sky itself flee from him, and he, the one from Revelation 1 that we talked about several weeks ago, who walks among the lampstands with white hair of wisdom and flaming eyes that can see into your soul, who has the feet of bronze that will never fall, the sword of truth coming out of his mouth, if this is the right and true judge, then what makes you think that your injustice and your violence and your rebellion and your sin is going to go unnoticed? It's not just that we might have sinned here and there, that we might have done something wrong or or, or whatever. It's that the, the whole of Revelation is showing us that the world is at war with its creator and you're either for him or you're against him. And apart from him... You're against them, and no one will escape that justice. There's a uh, there's a a singer, um, a guy named Sukin Stevens. He's really good, but he has this song called uh, called John Wayne Gacy Jr. Um, and if you're familiar with that name, uh, you know that John Wayne Gacy Jr. is a serial killer, and he uh, he the song the song uh, kind of talks about him and. Um, how he, you know, basically how he would uh, lure these these uh, really teenage boys into his house and uh, and kill them and then hide them in the floorboards of his house. And um, the last, the last kind of line of that song says that, in my best behavior, I'm really just like him. Look beneath the floorboards to see the secrets I have hid. And what he's saying is not that Sufjan Stevens is a serial killer, But he's saying that if we look into the the deep crevices of our hearts, if we look into what's really going on inside of us, that the same evil that exists in a man like John Wayne Gacy Jr., it lives in our hearts too. That we're not free from that. We're not safe from that. And so when we come before this great white throne of judgment, we're in a lot of trouble. But remember the one who is seated on the throne. Remember that this is the lamb who was slain. This is not the beast who tries to mimic the mortal wound. This is the lamb. And at the end of human history, he is sitting on his throne. And listen to this. If your faith is in Christ, if you put your trust in him, this is what Paul says happens to you in Colossians 3. It says, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That if your trust, if your hope, if your faith is in the Lamb who was slain and is seated on the throne, you will appear with him in glory. And Revelation 20 actually tells us, and I I don't know what this means. This is kind of mind-blowing. But it says that we are going to be ruling and reigning with him that we will share in his rule and reign over all creation. So we see that one day, someday, Jesus is going to judge the world, and he's going to judge it rightly, and he's going to judge it righteously. But the beauty of this passage is that our refuge from the judgment of this king is found in the grace of this king, that he gives and offers freely, and that's what he's showing us here. So this is the beginning of the end of human history. That Revelation 21 and 22 paint a beautiful picture for what happens with God's people. And we're going to look at that. But what do we do with all this now? And I think we do simply this. Is that we rest. We rest in his finished work. We rest in his ruling and reigning and we rest in his victory. Revelation 20 tells us that not only will Satan be thrown into the lake of fire, but death and Hades themselves will be thrown into the lake of fire. But it also means that we were destined for something far greater. We're going to flesh that out more next week, but everyone in Christ is destined to reign. And it means that God is working you towards an end that is full of unspeakable and unimagined dignity. And it is not a dignity that you can find or produce in yourself, It is not a dignity that you attain by being the best version of yourself you possibly can be. It is a dignity that is found by hiding yourself in the one who sits on the throne. And the good news is that that day has not come yet. So that even now he is calling you to trust him. That you will reign because he reigns forever and ever without end. And y'all, that is really good news. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you again for your word. Um, God, thank you for these promises. And Lord, I pray that for those of us here tonight who who know you, who love you, who trust you, um, Father, would you help us to rest in your accomplished victory, in your accomplished work for us? Lord, would you help us to trust that uh, not only will the battle be won, but the battle has been won? Jesus, that by your resurrection, that you're rising again from the dead, Lord, you have dealt the death blow to Satan and to all of your enemies. Lord, may we see you as the resurrected, true, righteous judge sitting on the throne who judges righteously. Lord, and may we hide ourselves in you and in your grace. It's in your name we pray. Amen.